Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Manor Township, Pennsylvania, located about 90 miles west of Philadelphia. It was originally surveyed for William Penn in 1719. Records indicate the name of the town was changed to Manor Township in 1759, and the town was officially founded in 1849. At that time, the manor's boundaries were comprised of 16,000 acres east of the Susquehanna River. From the late 1800s through the mid-1900s, Manor Township was known for producing tobacco, with Manor farmers producing more tobacco than any township in Lancaster County. A railroad was built along the western boundary of the township and enabled industries to develop, including a woolen factory, match factory, and an implement factory. In 1930, construction began on a dam for the Safe Harbor Water Power Corporation and was completed almost two years later. Most of the township has remained rural and agricultural, and the land is considered by soil scientists to be as fertile as any in the United States. Manor Township currently has a population of almost 22,000 residents and is considered to be one of the best places to live in Pennsylvania. But in 1975, the vicious murder of one young woman shattered the tranquility of this once innocent town, leaving its residents with the question, why? On Friday, December 5th, 1975, 19-year-old Lindy Sue Beekler returned home to her apartment around 6.30 p.m. after spending the day working as a clerk at Landis Flower and Gift Shop. She had not worked there for very long, but she really liked her boss and she got along well with all of her co-workers. Her husband of 14 months, 24-year-old Philip Beekler, was at work when she got home. He was an art student at local Millersville State College and worked part-time as a Hertz rent-a-car agent. After leaving work, Lindy went by her husband's work to pick up his paycheck, stopped at their bank to deposit the check, and then headed to a market in Millersville a few miles away where she usually did her shopping. Lindy's aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Merle Little, were returning home from a high school basketball game and decided to drop in on their niece and say hi. Now, Kathy, just really quickly, as part of 1975 newspapers, Mm -hmm. not only did they give your address, no matter you were the victim, the perpetrator, what have you, (laughs) but if you were a female who was married, you were never given a first name. So I do not know what the aunt's first name was, even in contemporary newspapers. Don't know what it is. She's Mrs. Little. She's Mrs. Merle Little. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So in addition to just saying hi, Lindy's aunt had a recipe that she wanted to give to her. So Mr. Little waited in the car while his wife went to go see Lindy. When Mrs. Little arrived at the first floor apartment, Lindy's door was ajar. She went in and received the shock of her life. Lindy was lying face up on the living room floor and a butcher knife was sticking out of her neck. The living room of the Beekler apartment was stained with blood, both on the walls and on the floor. There was also blood on the outside of the door leading into the apartment's narrow hallway down towards the bedroom and on the hallway floor. Lindy's husband, Phil, received a call at work that night from Lindy's stepmother. She told Phil that he needed to get home as fast as he could because something had happened to Lindy. When Phil arrived at their apartment building, no one would let him into his apartment. Finally, after what seemed like ages, the coroner came out and told him that his wife had been killed. Paramedics gave him a tranquilizer, and he said the only thing he remembered after learning Lindy had been killed 
was that he slept at his mother's house that night and then walked around in a daze for three or four days, not really knowing who he was or where he was. Manor Township Police Investigator Lieutenant Harvey West was in charge of the investigation. He told reporters who were waiting outside the apartment that Lindy's death was a homicide. Other than the blood, the only signs of struggle in the apartment were a broken lamp on an end table and an overturned lamp in the hallway. Three or four bags of groceries were also found on the kitchen table. However, there was not an apparent motive or suspect in the case. Police began looking into Lindy's background for clues. Growing up, she lived in the township with her mother and at times in the suburbs with her father since her parents were divorced. She attended McCaskey High School and tried her hand at Girl Scouts and baton twirling. You were never a Girl Scout, were you? No, but I was... Figures. I was, <laughs> I was an amateur baton twirler. <laughs> Weren't we all? Everybody had... Everybody had batons back then. I remember my friend Judy and I, we would spend hours on the front lawn twirling batons thinking that we were going to be the gal who led the band. Oh, nice. You're going to be in the Rose Parade. Exactly. The first one out there. And in that scenario, you would actually catch the baton every time it dropped, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> Instead of it hitting small animals and siblings. Know, for real. But it's like when I read this, I'm like, oh my God, batons, they were such a thing. You know, as were jacks and Chinese jump rope and tetherball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All of those things that would not be allowed now because you're going to drop a baton on your head, which we did. Right. You're going to get your hand stabbed with the jacks or step on them, which exactly. was totally common. And Chinese jump rope, that's probably very uh, politically incorrect these days. I'm going to guess you're <laughs> right about that. What about Chinese checkers? I like Chinese checkers. I wonder if they still have tetherball, well, although that can hang children. <laughs> my sister has a tetherball at her house. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Getting back to the relevant facts. The morning after the murder, police canvassed the four-unit apartment building for possible witnesses and quickly discovered that the occupants of the apartment across from the Beeklers and the people living in the two upstairs apartments were away when Lindy was murdered. No one was there to see or hear anything that happened. Lieutenant West said that one of the theories being looked at was that the intruder entered as Lindy was carrying her groceries in from the car and followed her into the apartment because there was no sign of forced entry. Lieutenant West also said police had ruled out burglary or robbery as a motive because Lindy's purse was not rifled through or taken and none of her jewelry was missing. Background checks were also being conducted on the Beekler's friends and neighbors. So they were looking for witnesses and suspects. Exactly. Lieutenant Harvey West and his department received assistance from two state police detectives. In addition, several surrounding police departments offered assistance in an effort to solve the gruesome homicide. A city police spokesman said officers were combing the records of several persons that one detective called creeps. Hello, 1975. Exactly. Robert Almond, the manager of the flower shop and gift shop where Lindy worked, said Lindy left the shop at around 5.30 p.m. on Friday. People at the flower shop described her as a very happy, outgoing girl. Although Robert Almond had only known her for a short time, he spoke glowingly of her, and that, along with the fact that he was a 35-year-old single man, stood out to police. Robert also did not have an alibi for the time of Lindy's death because he was closing up the store alone, and then he said he went home. Robert took a lie detector test and cooperated with police, but police were unwilling to discard him as a suspect so early. 
He, along with Lindy's husband, Phil Beekler, became the primary suspects. Phil said he was working at Hertz Rent-A-Car, and he was there when Lindy's stepmother called to tell him to go home, but the police needed to take a closer look at Phil and his alibi. Dr. Clyde Musselman, the Millersville deputy coroner, conducted a preliminary autopsy late the next morning on Saturday, December 6, 1975. The autopsy report found that Lindy was stabbed 19 times, mostly in the neck, chest, and abdomen. The cause of death was a four-inch deep wound in the left side of her neck, which punctured her carotid artery. The wounds were inflicted by an eight-inch butcher knife that had been taken from the Beekler's kitchen. Lindy had also been sexually assaulted. Dr. Musselman estimated Lindy's time of death between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. the night before. On December 9th, four days after the murder, Lieutenant West asked the public to help them find the driver of a car that was reported to have been double-parked near the Beekler's apartment complex on the night of the murder between 7 p.m. and 8.40 p.m. The car was described as a dark-colored, standard-size American car, and the headlights were on. Lieutenant West said that investigators did not know if the driver was involved in what happened to Lindy Beekler, but if the driver had been near the apartment building on the night of the murder, they hoped he may have seen something. Manor Township Police Chief Donald Sheeler said they received a strong response from the public and the phone had been ringing constantly. Detectives were hopeful some of the information would provide a lead. The chief said his investigators believed that the murderer had to have been covered in blood based on the amount of blood on the Beekler's walls and floor and appealed for anyone who might have seen or heard about someone with blood on their clothing Friday night to contact police. Chief Sheeler also said there were no fingerprints on the murder weapon, which had a small towel wrapped around the handle, but investigators did find a shoe print, possibly a men's size 10, on the floor of the Beekler's blood-spattered kitchen. Police needed to first rule out everyone who had been in the apartment the night of the murder, police detectives, paramedics, relatives, all of that, before they could determine if the shoe print might belong to the suspect. I found it interesting, Kath, that the murder weapon was from her own kitchen and the killer had the time to wrap a towel around it. Right, because nothing was said in the autopsy, or at least in the autopsy results that we saw, that there were any sorts of bruises, abrasions, hit in the head right. that might have taken her down, so he had time to do that. This is very interesting. Right. Is this something that he decided to do when he got there? On like, the spur was it, of the moment? Yeah. Like walking by or walking to his apartment and sees her struggling with groceries and decides that he has an opportunity. Or did he get inside the apartment and then make the decision? He didn't bring his own weapon. Right. Five days after Lindy was murdered, police received a tip that they hoped would lead them to their suspect. Detectives received a call that bloody clothing had been dropped off at a dry cleaner. Detectives confiscated the clothing and took it to the state police crime lab for analysis. However, after a police chemist ran tests, the stains were determined to not be human blood. At this point, police said they had spoken with almost 100 people about Lindy's murder. As we said previously, the police were looking at Phil, Lindy's husband, as a potential suspect. Lindy met Philip Beekler in early 1974. She was helping her half-sister Eileen, who was one of her closest friends, and Eileen's husband Gary paint their apartment. Eileen and Gary invited their downstairs neighbor, a quiet and friendly 23-year-old Philip, to help them with the painting. Philip said it was really one of those love-at-first-sight things, perhaps infatuation at first, but it soon became something more. 
Lindy and Phil were married on October 19, 1974, in a ceremony conducted by his grandfather, the Reverend William M. Beekler Sr. of Grace Evangelical Church. Investigators eventually dismissed Phil as a suspect. No one had a bad word to say about him, and friends knew of no marital problems. Police found no signs of drug use in the apartment, and there was nothing to indicate the couple had any dealings with a motorcycle gang. Hello, 1970s. Totally. (laughs) And detectives also verified with Hertz that Phil was at work when the murder occurred. Speaking of motorcycle gangs, I remember like growing up, like there was a lot of Hell's Angels in the city where I lived. Really? A hundred percent. They would hang out at bars near the ocean. It was a thing. Okay, so you know, hashtag the best lake, which Mm -hmm. by the way, we're going to on Saturday. Yay! It eventually became known as a police lake in the early 1960s because the area was having a problem with Hell's Angels coming in. And one side of the lake is a campground, as you know, the other side are homes. And the Hells Angels were taking over the campground, so the families who would naturally go there didn't go because they were afraid they didn't want to take small children. So the deal that the lake and the U.S. Forest Service were able to work out with the Hells Angels is that they would have the week of Memorial Day weekend, just them. Nobody else could camp at that time. They could just have the run of the place, but they had to stay away for the rest of the summer, and they took the deal. Wow. When the area was having a lot of problems with the Hells Angels originally, they encouraged police officers to bring their families. And so they would get camping fees for a reduced rate and they would have rentals of houses for a reduced rate, which, of course, police officer salaries, they all kind of flock to the lake. Mm -hmm. And once they were able to have the Hells Angels agree to only come for that Memorial Day week. That one week party. That one week party. (laughs) Exactly. With nobody there hassling them. I mean, I'm sure there were still sheriffs there just to make sure nothing got too rowdy, but they didn't have to worry about anybody else. It just became a big thing. That's the history of it. And you're right, 60s and 70s, that was a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Police stopped communicating with journalists on the Lindy Beekler murder about two weeks after her death. Over the next six weeks, investigators continually refused to comment when asked about the progress of the case. Two months after Lindy's murder, on February 5, 1976, authorities announced that they were making some progress towards solving the case, and Manor Township Lieutenant Harvey West agreed to answer questions about the investigation. He said they believed the suspect or suspects were still in the Lancaster area and that they did not think that Lindy's attacker was involved in any other crimes or murders in the Manor Township area. This last comment was in response to a man who had been arrested in Lancaster County for raping several women during the month of December, and there was speculation among the residents that he could be Lindy's killer. Lieutenant West said that they had interviewed between 250 to 300 people in connection with Lindy's case in the prior two months. First Assistant District Attorney Ronald Buckwalter said that he, or District Attorney D. Richard Ekman, received weekly status reports from Lieutenant West, and they were satisfied with the way the investigation was proceeding and commended the police for all of their hard work. Just one month later, on March 8, 1976, there was another stabbing in nearby Columbia, Pennsylvania that was remarkably similar to Lindy Beekler's murder. A secretary named Mary Shinzing was found dead with multiple stab wounds in her first floor apartment. Like Lindy, there was no use of force to get into the apartment and it also occurred on a Friday night. 
Columbia Police Chief Gardner T. Blink asked Manor Township Police to join in his investigation to see whether the similarities in the two women's deaths led to the same suspect. Ten days later, Columbia Police arrested Kenneth Dale Arndt, a 33-year-old handyman, for Mary Shinzing's murder. At that time, Lancaster County District Attorney Ekman announced that there was no indication that Arndt was involved in the murder of Lindy Beekler. Almost one year after Lindy's death, on November 24, 1976, Philip Beekler spoke with journalist Tom Infield with the Intelligencer Journal from his new apartment in Millersville, just a couple of miles away from the murder scene, where he was living with his sister Beth. Phil said that not knowing who killed Lindy was the hardest thing for him to deal with, and there were a lot of possibilities that played over and over in his mind. But one thing he knew for certain was the killer was someone both of them knew. When talking to journalist Infield, he described himself and Lindy as both being introverts. He said he learned a lot from her. He loved her very much, very deeply, and she had given him a lot of things. She made him feel maybe a little more confident about himself. Graciously, Phil said it must be very frustrating and disturbing for police that they had not been able to solve Lindy's murder over the past year. I thought it was interesting that he said that he and Lindy were both introverts, but the flower shop owner called her happy and extroverted. Well, it actually makes sense to me, though, Kath, because, you know, I'm an introvert. You are. But nobody thinks I'm an introvert because if I'm around people I know, you pretty much can't shut me up. That's true, actually. (laughs) You are Chatty McFarland when you're around people you know. (laughs) And for my job. I always had to be extroverted for my job. But you do need your quiet downtime. Well, and that's exactly it. It has nothing to do with how gregarious and outgoing you are. It's really more where do you get your energy from. And I don't get my energy from being around big crowds of people. And I do. (laughs) You do. Well, but you also grew up in a big crowd of people with your house. (laughs) That's true. I feel like when I'm at a party, as the night goes on, I get more energized. You totally do. Yeah, I I always win the party. Kathy's always the last to leave, (laughs) trust me. But her husband's always the first to leave or he's the first to sleep on the couch while everybody's talking around him. Years and years ago, somebody told me my husband was an introvert. I'm like, no, no, no. And so she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I asked him, like, what do you think? And he's like, I don't know. So she gave me this test, like, have him take this personality test. So I hand it to him and I go, hey, do you want to take this personality test? And he goes, no. Yeah. I go, OK, well, I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to take it for you. Yeah, I'm going to leave it here on the mantle and just take it if you want. So like two weeks later, he picks it up. He takes it. I find it. He rates as extremely introverted, which completely shocked me. Why? Because it's like you. You're around somebody, you know, you chat, chat, chat. So he was chatty around me. And I was like, but we're always the last to leave the party. Because of you. We do so many things. (laughs) He said, yeah, I know. I'm there because you won't leave. And I was like, oh. All of a sudden, I felt really guilty. And after that, I became more sensitive. Like when he would want to leave a party, I would say, come on, 30 more minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So she wouldn't go home. You could power through. (laughs) Exactly. But getting together at anybody's house, you know, on the weekends or whatever, a very common sight is your husband falling asleep. Totally. District Attorney Ekman spoke with journalist Tom Infield for the same article and acknowledged the frustration that there had not been any new leads. The general consensus among all of the police agencies involved was they just needed a break in the case. DA Ekman said they still had hope they could catch the perpetrator, but knew it would require someone who knew something to come forward. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. 
As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. On December 26, 1976, so just past one year since Lindy had been murdered, her family discovered her headstone at the cemetery had been vandalized. It was sprayed with red paint and the stone was chipped. The family had last visited Lindy's grave at the end of November, so the vandalism had to have occurred at some point over the past month. Authorities also said that, interestingly, no other grave markers in the cemetery were damaged. With no new real leads in the case, as 1976 became 1977, there were a couple of things that kind of came to the police attention that they eventually dismissed. One of the things that came up was in early January when Manor Township Police received a letter marked urgent. It was written as if it was from the man who stabbed Lindy and vandalized her tombstone. Police considered the letter a hoax and decided not to publish it. And then, a few months later, there was a psychic arts festival being held in Lancaster, and a psychic named Robert Cherzan spoke about the unsolved murder of Lindy Beekler. Cherzan predicted that Lindy's murder would not be solved for at least five years until someone who is now strong finally breaks down. He also predicted her murder was committed by someone she knew, and it was an inside job. When he talked about the image of the killer in his mind, Cherzan said the image was of hands passing out money to other hands. You know, in our episode about the Grony family, we talked about the psychic who they hired and the woman said she saw her somewhere in the woods. Right. And we had said not really a big far reach for Idaho and Montana. Exactly. I thought it was funny, though, when Cherzan said it would be at least five years. So if it was 50 years, he could still say, OK, I said at least right, five. Right, exactly. Fast forward to October 24th, 1982, now almost seven years after Lindy was murdered, when the police learned about a new possible suspect. A 31-year-old Florida man named Gerald Eugene Stano, who had already been convicted of three murders and given three consecutive life sentences, confessed to killing 33 women in Florida, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania in the 1970s. So, Kath, real quick, mm-hmm. fun fact about the serial killer, mm-hmm. Gerald Eugene Stano was not his real name. He actually changed his name. Mm-hmm. His real name was Paul Zeininger. There were two reasons why Manor Township Police thought Stano was a possibility. First, his parents lived in Lancaster County during the time period in which Lindy was killed. Second, the way Lindy died of multiple stab wounds to the head, neck, and chest was similar to the attacks on his other victims. The Lancaster New Era newspaper reported that although Stano said he had been living in Florida at the time Lindy was murdered, his driver's license listed his father's address in Lancaster. Police circulated photos of Stano, but no one they questioned remembers seeing him in Lancaster County in December of 1975. 
Police Lieutenant Harvey West admitted that officers could not put Stano in Lancaster County when Lindy was killed, and until they could prove that, he was not a very good suspect. Several months later, the newspaper reported that Manor Township Police all but ruled out Stano as Lindy's killer. A year and a half later, so this is eight years after Lindy was murdered, the Lancaster Intelligencer Journal reported that the district attorney's office paid $2,000 for two California-based psychics to evaluate Lindy's case in 1981 or 1982. A photo of Lindy Beekler was sent to psychics, a man and a woman, who reported back that it was their impression that the woman in the photo had been brutally stabbed in an enclosed space. The psychic said it was also their impression that Lindy's assailant had a tattoo on his arm and had dark or olive skin and dark hair and brown eyes. Lancaster County Detective Paul Wagner said the psychics may have been describing Mark Capalupo, who had been charged with sexual assaults in the Lancaster County area in 1975 and was later shot and killed by a guard during an escape attempt at Lancaster County Prison. Capalupo fit the psychic's description, but he had been ruled out as a suspect. Police were able to confirm that Capalupo was working when Lindy was stabbed to death. In April 1989, so now almost 13 and a half years has gone by looking for Lindy's killer, when police started looking at a new form of fingerprinting, DNA. The Lancaster Sunday News reported that police used a spot of dried blood they believed came from Lindy or the killer and sent it to be analyzed, but unfortunately it was a dead end because for whatever reason it could not be. Remember, this is 1989, so it's the very early days of DNA testing. And so my guess is, and I think yours too, is that it probably was not enough. Like Mm -hmm. the amount of the blood drop was not enough to test. On June 19, 1992, more than 16 years after Lindy was killed, Lancaster New Era journalist John M. Huber III reported that Lancaster District Attorney Joseph C. Maidenspacher was forming a team to look at old unsolved murder cases beginning with Lindy Beekler's murder in Manor Township. Lancaster City Police Department Captain of Detectives Joseph P. Giese was retiring after 34 years with the Lancaster PD the following month, and the district attorney's office hired him as a county detective and a key member of the DA's Major Crimes Investigative Network. Lieutenant Harvey West, who originally headed the investigation into Lindy's murder, had died the year prior, but his notes of the investigation were very detailed and still available for the new investigators to take a look at. On the 15th anniversary after Lindy's murder, on December 5, 1992, Manor Township Police decided to release the letter sent to the station one year after Lindy had been killed. This was the one that they had dismissed and decided not to release. An FBI agent with the Behavioral Analysis Unit said that it was unlikely the killer wrote the letter. The writer possibly had an indirect or secondary role, but was not the killer. On the front page of the Lancaster New Era newspaper on December 3, 2007, so we're now 32 years after Lindy Beekler was murdered, journalist Janet Kelly reported that the brothers of two women whose murders remained unsolved put up a billboard on a major highway asking for tips to help them solve the murders. The billboard had pictures of both women, Christy Mirak, who was killed in 1992, and Lindy Beekler, who was killed in 1975. The billboard said, Unsolved, Unresolved, Do You Know Who Murdered Us? Michael Little, who was Lindy's half-brother, and Vince Mirak, Christy's brother, 
wanted to remind people of their sister's unsolved murders. They emphasized what investigators had been saying all along. Someone had information, and no piece of information was too small or too insignificant. On July 16, 2018, LNP Online news reporter Tom Knapp spoke with many of the people involved with the investigation into Lindy's murder 43 years earlier. The murder of Christy Mirak, the woman on the billboard with Lindy in 2007, was solved the month before, in June of 2018, with the use of DNA samples found at the scene of Christy's murder. Phil Beekler, Lindy's husband at the time of her death, told reporters that he had been wondering if DNA was something they could use to help find Lindy's killer. Manor Township Detective Tricia Mazur, who inherited the case from the past generations of detectives, was optimistic, although noted that the DNA profile they had from Lindy's case was not as strong as the one from Christy Mirak's case. Phil Beekler, who remarried 15 years after Lindy was killed, still lived nearby in Millersville and said he hoped the murder would be solved. He said he thought there were a lot of things in the investigation that were botched, including focusing on him as a suspect to the exclusion of other leads. And, you know, Kath, Lindy's boss at the flower shop, Mm -hmm. Richard Almont, he actually was also somebody they looked at for a long time. Right. To the point that he hired an attorney to protect him. Exactly. People were camping out in front of his house and reporters and he felt harassed. And so he hired an attorney to protect his privacy rights. Which almost made me go, oh, I remember when privacy was a thing. Oh, that's so quaint. (laughs) You know, but it is like privacy was a thing. Right. It's still a real right. It just doesn't feel like one. Correct. Although the police never outright said this or announced it to the press as far as I could find, Mm -hmm. Robert Almont was cleared of any suspicion in Lindy's murder. So here we are in 2018 and police are hopeful because of how they solved Christy Mirak's murder. In Christy's case, authorities submitted her killer's DNA through GEDmatch.com, which is a private online genealogy service, and it linked to the killer's half-sister out of nearly 1.4 million profiles on the site. What's interesting, Kathy, is this was done in 2018. Mm -hmm. Prior to May of 2019, anybody who submitted their DNA to GEDmatch, it was put in a public database that was searchable by police. Correct. Like maybe through search warrant or subpoena, but it was searchable. In May of 2019, they changed their privacy policy. So that if you wanted your DNA to be in a searchable database, you had to opt in to have it be there. So rather than the 1.4 million DNA profiles that police were able to search to find Christy Mirak's killer, with this new opt-in policy, that number was reduced to 10%. So only 140,000 DNA profiles remained in the searchable database. So this must have been a retroactive policy. Do you see what I'm saying? Like if they had 1.4 in the database, these people must have been notified like, hey, do you you want to be in this database? Exactly. We're changing our privacy policy. Here it is. But what was interesting, though, is that a lot of times when companies do that, governments do it, you have to opt yourself out, which is a lot more difficult because then you've got to actually go in and change it yourself. On September 6, 2019, LMP journalist Jeff Hawks reported that Lancaster County DA Craig Stedman held a news conference the prior day and released sketches of the man who they believed may have killed Lindy Beekler. The district attorney's office and Manor Township Police had hired Virginia-based Parabon Nanolabs to create the composites, also called phenotypes, 
and the two images were generated from DNA at the 1975 murder scene. One image showed what the killer may have looked like at age 25, the other was at age 65. We had talked earlier about how Lindy's husband, Phil Beekler, was a suspect early on, and right. he made the comment that maybe it was to the exclusion of others. Right. In 2019, when the DA announced these phenotypes, right. he also announced that they had taken the DNA and checked it against Phil Beekler's. Oh, that's interesting. It is. This is much longer, but he was not a match. So, Kath, we've spoken about Parabon Nanolabs previously in our Sandwich case. Right. Episode 29, Jake Cook and Tanya Van Kylenborg. Okay. I'll pretend you don't have OCD anyway. <laughs> or that you're not a savant. <laughs> or, or that I have a memory. <laughs> I don't know. Memories are overrated. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but they basically, the phenotyping is where you take bits and pieces of the DNA that have already been identified. Like, oh, this is the DNA that people have when they have brown hair, blonde hair, that kind of thing. And that's how they create these composites. So these composites are not without controversy. But the real break in Lindy Beekler's case came after investigators teamed up with C.C. Moore, the chief genetic genealogist at Parabon Nanolabs. Ms. Moore said in 2020 that she used the DNA and through a lot of research was finally able to find a family tree that she believed belonged to a potential suspect. Kath, from what I read, it took her a long time. Yeah, two years. She worked really hard at this. So, Kath, I read that the killer's DNA indicated that he was from the Calabria region in southern Italy. And so Cece Moore started looking at family trees from that area of people who had immigrated to the United States, which is why it took her two years to figure this out, because there was no DNA match per se. Right. So now she's doing her genealogical investigating. Well, and as she was doing this and looking at the family trees, one man on this tree had very deep roots in the local Lancaster community. Cece Moore also said that there were very few people living in Lancaster that were the right age, gender, and had the right family tree. So mm -hmm. that, once she finally got there, right. it helped narrow it down for her. Yeah. To ensure that the potential suspect's DNA was the same as the DNA left at the crime scene, authorities began surveilling the man, who they learned did not go out in public very much. On February 11th of 2022, this suspected killer, his wife, and some friends were at the airport waiting to get on a plane. Investigators waited until the suspect and his group had boarded the plane, and then they rushed over to the trash can to retrieve a coffee cup that the suspect had thrown into the trash. Crime lab analysis compared the DNA found on the coffee cup to DNA identified from two spots of blood found on Lindy's pantyhose. The profiles were the same. It made sense to detectives because they had long believed that the suspect had cut himself during this vicious attack on Lindy. On July 18, 2022, more than 46 years after Lindy Beekler's murder, Lancaster County District Attorney Heather Adams announced the arrest of David Sinopoli, age 68, for the murder of Lindy Sue Beekler in 1975. D.A. Adams gave credit to CeCe Moore and Parabon Nanolabs saying investigators were able to develop David Sinopoli as a suspect thanks to a profile based on their DNA analysis and Ms. Moore's painstaking research. D.A. Adams said Sinopoli lived in the same four-unit building as Lindy at one point in 1974, which was the year prior to her murder. 
but the district attorney declined to provide any details on whether the two knew each other or what the potential motive was. She also said she did not think this case would have ever been solved without the genetic genealogy because this suspect was never on the detective's radar. None of the tips over the years ever suggested Sinopoli as someone to investigate. So who is David Sinopoli? According to journalist Carter Walker with LNP Online, David Sinopoli appeared to have lived all of his 68 years in Lancaster County. Researching through his newspaper's archives, journalist Walker found that for the first 50 years of Sinopoli's life, he showed up in the pages of the LNP's predecessor newspapers for the same reasons most people do. A letter to the editor, a wedding notice, property conveyances, and a divorce. But according to both court records and a February 10, 2004, Intelligence or Journal article, Sinopoli admitted to spying on a woman who was naked in a tanning room at a hair salon where he was an employee. Sinopoli was sentenced to one year of probation in 2004 after pleading guilty to invasion of privacy and disorderly conduct. Sinopoli graduated from McCaskey High School in 1972, one year before Lindy graduated from there. And he took a job at Steckel Printing, where he worked as a pressman for nearly 30 years before going to work for another printing company. A co-worker at Steckel who knew Sinopoli during the mid-1990s said she never knew him to be anyone who had a creepy side and that he seemed like a real nice guy. In 1974, the year before Sinopoli allegedly killed Lindy Beekler, he married his first wife, Deborah Burns, and the couple divorced in 1986 after having two sons. Deborah Burns declined to comment for journalist Walker but did tell him that since the press conference, she had been in contact with the police. Sinopoli remarried in 1987 and had a daughter, but his current wife would not respond to requests to speak with reporters. David Sinopoli was charged with one count of criminal homicide and is being held in Lancaster County Prison without bail. Unfortunately, Lindy's parents did not live long enough to see police make an arrest in their daughter's murder. Her father died in 2000, and her mother died in early 2007. At the time of this recording, Lindy's husband at the time of her death, Phil Beekler, had not commented on the arrest. District Attorney Heather Adams said at the press conference, Lindy Sue Beekler was 19 years old when her life was brutally taken away from her 46 years ago in the sanctity of her own home. The arrest of David Sinopoli marks the beginning of the court process and we hope that it brings some sense of relief to Lindy's loved ones and to the community, who for the past 47 years have had no answers. We want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast. And the minute we don't, we're going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but we also appreciate all the messages we're getting we from totally listeners do. who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. And so please just share this with your friends. And that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them. 